This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us on another exploration of this great hobby of ours. If you're new to our website, welcome aboard. But whether you're a long-timer to the show or a newbie, be sure to tell your friends about us. On today's show, we examine the micro and the macro of successful layout modeling. Later on in the show, we're going to welcome back Brooks Stover. This time, he'll have some practical and valuable tips for moving your dream layout towards completion. First, though, it's time to welcome a man who's done a whole lot to make realistic-looking model track a whole lot easier to do. Here's Trevor with Mr. Proto 87, Andy Reichardt. Digital cameras are great modeling tools. If you want to see what a scene really looks like, snap a photo with a high-megapixel digital SLR and throw it up on a high-resolution computer monitor. But beware, the off-sighted three-foot rule just doesn't stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Even without a digital camera, hobbyists are becoming more discerning about how they present their layouts. Here at the Model Railway Show, we applaud anyone who attempts to create models and scenes so realistic that we can't tell whether we're looking at the real thing or a scale recreation of it. Hobbyists like Mike Confalone, Jack Burgess, Jim Dufour, Pele Soaborg, and Jeremy St. Peter come to mind. One clue that often gives away the illusion of reality is poorly modeled track. If the spike heads are the size of footballs, that's a sure sign that we're looking at a layout and not a real scene. So it's a pleasure to welcome my guest to the show today. Andy Reichert is the man behind Proto 87 Stores and Accurate Track Emporium, a one-stop online shop for highly detailed track components and track building aids. As the company name suggests, most of the components are for HO scale, but on a personal note, I have used about 20,000 of his chemically milled scale size spikes on my current S-scale layout, so there's interesting stuff here for all modelers. A tour of Andy's website is a real eye-opener, and we'll have a link to Proto 87 stores on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com, so be sure to check that out. Andy, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Trevor. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to someone who's interested in track. I wasn't kidding about that 20,000 spikes. My hands are tired from putting them all in. Well, there seem to be a lot of people that do that, because I think we passed the 10 million spike level couple of years back, so there must be a lot of them out there by now. Wow. What got you interested in creating accurate track, and why did you want an alternative to more traditional track options? It's such a long story. I had to be sort of just slipping a couple of things, but I grew up in the UK, as you may be able to tell from my lack of an accent. So what happened there was my home from three years old till I went to college actually backed right directly onto a British railroad that was a commuter system into London, and it started out as steam trains, switched over to electric in 1960 when I was a teenager. It was part of my life. My bedroom window looked out and there was a a locomotive shed to the left. The carriage or coach sidings were on the right and the line ran across the front of it. And all I did in my youth was listen to and look at trains and tracks. So it kind of stuck in my mind. And then as a normal British young teenager, I started my own model railway layout and gave that up when I went to college and eventually I moved to the States for my job but when I found that Los Angeles had a streetcar system that disappeared and my wife accidentally I think had bought me a model of a Los Angeles Pacific electric car that she saw for my birthday when I was in my late 30s and that started everything over again and what I needed to do was I had a wonderful model of a beautiful interurban car and when I went to find track for it 
I discovered that there wasn't much in the way of trolley track or street track out there, and the few items that were were just so hugely overscaled that I just couldn't imagine running the car on them. At that point, I decided that I had to go out and look at real track and say, you know, well, this is what the real thing is. How do I make a model of it? And two things happened. One is that I got very familiar with American track. And the second thing is I realized that it's nothing like the track that you can buy in a hobby shop or that some of the stuff that's called hand laid track, neither of them look at all like actual real road track so that when you reduce the scale, they just, they just don't look right. This was a personal project that has then become a business for you. How did it become a business? Well, it's a business in the sense that I sponsored it. It's not the sort of business that's out looking for product to sell and you know pass on to other people and take the profit. The core of the business is me trying to get the components I needed to build my layout and discovering that I wanted A, lots of them, uh, B, I'm a professional engineer by training and experience, which means that I wanted them done well and to accurate specification. And that led me to the fact that if I wanted lots of things that were built properly, then I had to manufacture them rather than sit there and imagine a 200 years job of you know lots and lots of craftsmanship, which obviously I'd never finished. I went the manufacturing route because of my background. I was able to afford to start it off at least. And since I was manufacturing stuff, I joined the Proto 87 SIG by then and also the Traction Modeling SIG and I decided it would be a good idea if I offered to share the stuff and I would become the storekeeper, which is hence the name, for the Proto 87 SIG. Sort of treated that as my contribution to the hobby and I was quite happy in the situation I was in to sponsor the beginnings of that and that's how it started. It's become a business because lots of people want to share the parts and because the structure of the business is such that I'm the designer but I'm a volunteer and all the I have to outlay is the tooling cost for any parts that need to be tooled up and the manufacturing cost of building yet another part. So because I want to contribute that, then that plus the cost of running the so-called business is then the way we price things. It's not pricing to market. It's just basically this is what the stuff costs. If you want some, then order it and we'll make more. It's that sort of concept. Very interesting. I guess most of your customers then are working in Proto 87 or do you get people in other scales as well? I know I mentioned off the top that I'm using them in S-scale, and I have to admit I've used your spikes for O-scale narrow gauge as well, but I'm wondering if, if you're seeing a larger number of modelers coming to you from other scales as well. I get lots of inquiries for other parts in O-scale and s I found out that most of the parts, although I started out, and I'm a Proto 87 guy myself, but most of the parts for track are the same for HO as they are for Proto 87. The only difference is the flange way at the frog and the guard rails. Everything else is pretty much the same. And, of course, it doesn't have the British problem of changing the scale, changing the gauge. The HO scale gives you HO gauge, which is exactly the same gauge as Proto 87. And the only difference is Proto 87 uses scale wheels, hence the flange way has to be smaller. It's part of the map of doing a model railroad wheels and track standard that if you make the wheels narrow, you have to have the flange ways to match. Are most of the people coming to you then building smaller, highly detailed layouts, or do you have any customers who are building basement empires? There's quite a few basement empire types, but even so, I'm at the point where I don't have a complete product line. I think, you know, if we talk about the future at some point, I still have a long way to go to meet my criteria for everything I want for my own layout. But at the moment, you can build very accurate track We've got the tie plates and the tools to make the turnouts, and it's basically just an assembly process. And as an alternative, I've worked with Central Valley, which is a very close neighbor here in Arroyo Grande, and they provide the plastic bases for what I call the fast 
an easy track range, which is almost precision accurate track, but it's plastic based and it's got a very similar design approach. It's basically got a slot that you put the rail in and you can just glue the rails down and you'll get very acceptable track. It's far superior to hand load track, but you can very, very rapidly just stick it down and use it in the places where you don't want people necessarily to come and say, gosh, look how wonderful the track is. I mean, there's many places on a layout where people walk up to a layout and look very closely at a small area and say, gosh, isn't that wonderful? They don't then go and walk around, you know, 50 feet of main line and do the same thing everywhere else. So it's perfectly okay to have less detailed track for the rest of it and just focus on the viewpoints and put them the really good stuff there. So a little bit of theater work kind Coming into play there. Well, it is, but yeah, there's lots of places in a lap you just can't bend over and look closely at the track. It's too far away, or it's inconvenient, etc. So there's, there's no point in trying to make it digital camera ready, if that's the expression I should use. Everywhere, you don't want to do it in tunnels, you don't want to do it in the hidden yards, and then there's the far side curves, etc., where you just can't lean over and look at them. So, I think the American culture is to go to operations, and many, many people want track to be just laid as fast as possible, so that they can then go into the operations mode and. You know, chip cards between industries and enjoy that aspect of model railroading. Okay, well, let's talk about your customers. You mentioned, uh, obviously, American customers, and your track components are for what we consider North American prototype track as opposed to, yes. you know, the British track that has chairs and bullhead rail. Your stuff would also be of interest to British fine-scale modelers who are looking at a North American prototype or even any prototype that employs flat-bottomed rail. Do you have a lot of overseas customers for this as well? I would say that probably something like 70 to 80% of our sales go over overseas and we're not talking about just the UK. I mean it's the UK, it's Australia, New Zealand, ship stuff to Russia, Israel, Germany, France, Norway, all the places that people who can read the model railroad and are interested in doing American or similar to American modeling. These people just love to get some of the finer components and work and I think that those people actually do build possibly smaller layouts. But we do have apart from myself, people are working on larger layouts in the US. But it's been relatively short time for these products to be available. I mean, I've only been doing this really seriously for the last 10 years or so. So you'll see stuff, I think, turning up on the larger layouts in a few years' time. This is the transition time where people who are really seriously about doing it are actually just basically getting on with it. They're not talking too much because they've got too much to do. If someone goes and looks at your website, they'd be forgiven, I think, if they felt a little bit intimidated looking at the quality of the track that you're able to produce. But how does working with your track components compare to other methods of building track? Are there advantages to using your components over say commercial track or hand laid? I believe in making life easy. I'm an engineer by background so I'm used to making stuff that other people can assemble or put together because that's not what my job was so I didn't want people to do any heavy duty soldering. I didn't want them to have to measure things and I certainly don't want them filing pieces of metal hopefully with accurate edges and corners and sides and distances because all those things are what I call craftsman skills. They're very difficult to acquire. You can't sort of become a metalworking craftsman overnight. It's something, even with machine tools, you often spend years getting used to before you can produce anything you're satisfied with. The difficult part is producing 500 pieces of something that are exactly the same and all have the same measurement. So the criteria is, can anybody put it together? And can it be put together as a process? I, if you follow the instructions, then you will get the end result and it will be accurate without you having to do anything. Those are the two things that happen. It sounds like accurate track doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing proposition, that modelers are going to be able to employ some of your parts, such as the turnout points, in traditional hand laid track. Is that a fair thing to say? It's fair up to a point. I always recommend that if you're interested in hand making your own track and you want to use components, that you try and use as many of the components that we've got as possible because they 
all work together. If you use our frogs, then you can, you can lay a turnout, put one of our frogs down. You don't have to do filing or measuring to get the frog accurate. It's already done for you. If you use our points, they have a little hole drilled in the end, which means that the throw bar system will actually snap into them. You don't have to worry about making a throw bar, and you certainly don't have to worry about the non-reliability of having soldered PCB throw bars or anything that's going to work for a couple of years and then breaks. These are stainless steel components, and they snap in. And I'm pretty much at the point after 10 years where I can pretty much think that I'm going to start telling people I'm going to guarantee that sort of stuff for life. You know, it's just something that just doesn't break. It just keeps on working. In addition, to the traditional track components, you also have a line of parts for trolley modelers or even for modelers of steam-powered or diesel-powered prototypes who need to build some track buried in the street. Tell me about Electric Avenue, the HO display layout that uses these components. Well, this was the reason for everything, was how do I make decent street track? What I discovered was that someone in the UK many years ago had actually come up with something similar, but they designed all the rail running slot and everything so close to the prototype that it was actually impractical to use it when you reduce the scale so it kind of came and went but I tracked it down I made sure that I bought the rights and the people that did it and then I set about modifying it and now Electric Avenue is a practical version of that I built it originally for Proto 87 but I was able to look at the dimensions and just sort of tweak things very slightly and it turns out that you can run HO wheels on the same track and it runs on the flange tips the flanges on HO wheels go half deep into the slots and provided you don't treat it like a racing car system it will run perfectly reliable with standard off-the-shelf HO trolleys. So is that your home layout then? My home layout actually exists in the factory. We have a factory down in Grover Beach and I've got a 25 by 12 quadruple oval down there which is going to be the basis of an eventual what might be called a home layout. What I want to do actually is take the layout into a commercial premises and actually have it on permanent exhibition for people to come and visit rather than just sort of treat it in something in the attic and hide it away. The idea of the layout is that it's going to be historically accurate for the Pacific Electric, so we'll actually form the nucleus of the museum, if you like. You said four tracks, so I guess you're looking at something like down by Watts or something like that. Yes, in fact, I'm going to, the first station we're going to model is actually the Watts station, and one of the reasons for working on single slips and double slips is that the shorter cars actually turned around at Watts, and they, on one side of the slow track they came in, and then they had to cross all four tracks to go back in the other way, and, and there were lots of slips in the crossing so that trains could go from fast track to slow track and slow track to fast track on their way to Long Beach and freight trains, etc. So it's a quite a complicated track. It also goes three directions with three double tracks and four tracks, so it's a pretty complex track layout. I find I have a very simple layout myself, and so I put a lot of time into detailing the track. So I really appreciate that you're offering these terrific components for building better track for us. Andy, thanks for joining me on the Model Railway Show. It was a treat to talk to you. Oh, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening. Trevor, I have to wonder, how many times have others in the hobby benefited when one talented modeler decided to share the stuff he designed and made for himself? I think it happens all the time, Jim. You look at a number of the people who start up structure kit companies or resin rolling stock kit companies, it's usually because they had a project that they wanted, no one else made it, and they said, I'm going to have to make it myself. And we're happier for it. By the way, you might have noticed a slight shift in Trevor's voice. Because this is a kit-built show, or maybe we scratch-built the show, 
it, it doesn't come out of the box. And that particular interview was recorded at a different time when you had a head cold. I certainly did. A really bad one. There's one going around, and mm-hmm. Dandy was also suffering a bit from a cold, he said. And so he apparently had a cup of tea at his end. I had a cup of tea at my end, and we were taking turns sipping. And That's the best you could do for each other, a cup of tea. Is. Yeah, I don't know what disturbs me more about this interview. The fact that you say you shoved 20,000 spikes in, or the fact that you counted them all. Well, I counted the number of frets that I bought. Uh, so I, I see. Didn't do yeah. them. Uh, I didn't say one I can, spike, I had, two spike. I'm I not have, the count from Sesame Street. I have visions Street. of you losing. <laughs> yeah, the count. <laughs> I have visions of you losing count and pulling them all up and then starting, and starting over again. again. <laughs> yes. Well, listeners are thinking about just how yeah. silly that would yeah. be. Well, let's I think remind. Maybe we should just keep moving yeah. on. Don't forget, you can find the Model Railway Show on Facebook. There are a number of different ways to listen to us, but some of the better ones are iTunes, Podcast.com, or Podfeed.net. Well. Next up, is your layout languishing while you agonize over the small stuff? Maybe it's time to breathe out and listen to what Jim's guest has to say. It's time to welcome Brooke Stover back to the show. On our previous show, we talked about his impressive website for the now extinct Buffalo Creek and Gauley Railroad. If you missed that show, it's in our archive just waiting for you to open it. But we're now going to move on from Brooke's website to his actual model railroad and the book he has published describing the construction of his miniature BC&G. Welcome back to the show, Brooks. Great to be here, uh, Jim. Thanks so much. Now, last time out, we referenced your 2009 Railroad Model Craftsman article. You wrote about how you construct your large and impressive website about the Buffalo Creek and Gauley. At that time, you wrote that you had decided a website was a better way to go than writing a book. You have now published a book entitled Modeling the Buffalo Creek and Gauley Railroad. So what changed your mind about the book? Well, let me clarify here. We're actually talking about two different books. And frankly, a lot has transpired since that 2009 article. When I wrote in the 2009 RMC article that I'd picked the website instead of doing a book, it was because I realized this two-way potential of a website that a book didn't have. And so I started the website instead of starting with a book. But since 2009, I have actually published a book on the BCNG, the prototype, and it's basically everything that's in the website in a 216-page black-and-white hardcover book. Despite the fact that I said in that article that I wasn't going to do a book on the prototype, I did do one in 2011, and you can find that on the website. Mm -hmm. The book you're talking about that relates to the model railroad came a little later within the last year, and I decided that my layout was far enough along that I just wanted to capture for my family's record, if nobody else's, what I'd been doing with my hobby time for the last 30 years or so. I think we live vicariously through what other people do. It's always fun to have a book that can track a layout's progress from conception to inception and completion. So I'm glad you did change your mind about the book. It gave me another one to add to my collection. Can we talk a bit about the subject of the book, your home layout? This is the third iteration of the layout, isn't it? Can you give us a brief history of each of the three layouts? Like so many of us in the model hobby, I've been interested in model trains for as long as I can remember. My brother and I built an American Flyer layout when we were kids. I'm one of the few guys that has stayed with us, never modeled in any other scale, never built a layout in any other scale. I built my first feeble attempt at the BC&G in the late 1970s. Then in the mid-1980s, we moved, and I started a second layout, and that second one was substantially better. It was designed for operation, but I still was using converted American Flyer locomotives, but I used Dynatrol and installed KD couplers, and I was starting to experiment with operations, and I was pretty much into building all the structures from prototype photos. 
The current layout was started in 1998, again when we moved to a new home. I moved as many of the structures and trees and things that were portable from the prior layout, but all the bench work, track work, scenery, electronics, DCC, and everything is new for this layout. And it's employed everything that I've learned about modeling and the BCNG over the prior years. It was designed from the outset to be used for operations, and I was fortunate enough to be able to pretty much design the whole thing in the space in which it exists before construction began, and then it was just a matter of executing to the design. Executing to design, that sounds like auto industry talk. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. It's my style. I knew I wanted to get a layout far enough along that it would appear finished to the casual observer, but more importantly, that it could be used to host operating sessions. I couldn't be diddly-dallying around, redoing parts, so I laid the thing out very carefully, made sure it was going to work as I intended before I began construction, and then construction was able to move along at a pretty brisk pace. I enjoyed the whole book, especially how you scratch-build good-looking, low-cost structures. I I love the phrase, (laughs) low-cost. Chapter 2, though, is the one I think should be required reading for anyone who's contemplating a layout, which is why we uh, rang your phone, and I hope you don't mind us asking to give away too much of your book. Uh, It's just one chapter. The chapter is called Modeling Philosophy, and I think it's got four very worthwhile bits of advice, none of which is hard to grasp, but which some of us might overlook. So can we take them one at a time here? Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. So your first recommendation is look to the prototype for inspiration. Let me start by suggesting that these four points, of which this is the first, are kind of interrelated. And if you get real nitpicky, sometimes they kind of blur together. But I didn't worry too much about that. Also, I should make the point that I didn't write down all these elements and then go build a layout using them. They came to me in retrospect after I looked at the layout, saw that I had accomplished a fair amount in a relatively short time compared to what some other folks had done, and tried to identify how did I do that. I think that's an important point. These are what I discovered I did Mm -hmm. after I did it, not defining in advance how I was going to do something. Relative to looking to the prototype for inspiration, I realized looking back that modeling a prototype makes building a layout a whole lot easier because you don't have to invent everything. And the research itself is part of the fun. I had studied the BCNG in photos and in words for a long time, and I had basically internalized the look and the feel of the railroad, the actual railroad. It was clear that that internalization just found its way into my modeling. Things like the density of the foliage in the background of photographs and the color of rocks, the shapes of the materials of the structures that were built along the railroad, even down to the consists of the trains that I saw in the photographs, the number of non-hopper cars versus the number of hopper cars in a typical consist, found its way into the way I designed the layout. And the fact that the BCNG was operating a very laid-back style. They didn't have a dispatcher. It wasn't a signaled railroad. So that's the way I developed the operating scheme. And I found that by looking to the prototype, I identified things to put on the layout, details that I never would have thought of. There's an interesting little tin mail shed in one of the towns. I never would have thought of that as a place for a train to stop and drop off a mailbag. They had a fascinating little Jeep that they'd put some water tanks and a pump of some kind on, and they called it a fire truck. 
Well, I modeled that, and it's great to tell people the story of, in fact, show them a picture of the prototype Jeep that I never would have thought of. So looking to the prototype to inspire your layout was critical to me accomplishing what Uh I did on mine. Well, having said that, one doesn't have to model a specific prototype. They can freelance but see what the prototype does so they don't go off in every direction. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You could do all the research I did on the BC&G and then create a railroad of your own that had that character, and that would be doing the Uh same thing. It would be using the prototype for inspiration, but your layout, even if it wasn't called the BCNG, it would have a character of an actual railroad because it was driven by the character of a real one. Yeah. Next, capture the character, don't count rivets. This probably isn't a particularly unique thought. When I started my layout, I wanted to get it far enough along, as I said, to look finished, host operating sessions, and so on. And it was clear I couldn't model everything into the finest detail. And besides, modeling an S starts you right off at a bit of a disadvantage because there's less to pick from, particularly for an obscure prototype. I studied photographs of structures, rolling stock, everything I needed to model. But then when I actually went about building the model, I sort of put the photographs aside and just modeled it the way I remember it. So if a passenger car had five windows down the side and I saw a quick way to build a one that had six windows, but it had the character of the car, I didn't worry about that. I just built the model the easier way. The philosophy I used was, would somebody who had worked for the railroad recognize the scene on the layout or the piece of equipment? If they would recognize it, that was good enough for me. I am in no way a rivet counter, generally speaking. I just try to shoot for effect and capture the character of the pieces of equipment and the buildings on the railroad. Well, two things here. A lot of people who do count the rivets uh, never get past the plywood Pacific stage. You made an interesting uh, point about what you remember from a scene. It's interesting to back in using your memory rather than try to go forward from uh, plans or photographs because the stuff you remember is quite often what someone else remembers. Yes, it is. And if you've committed to saying you're going to have every model be an exact replica, you might not get models done just because you can't get the information. I've got many buildings that I only have one view of, and I've just gone ahead and represented the view that I've got the photograph of as best I can, and then freelance the rest. And when I show folks the photograph, they look at the model and say, wow, you've modeled the building. Well, yeah, because the side you see, I have modeled. The other sides, I've just freelanced. That's an important element to keep a railroad moving. Now, I want to say, I think it's important. I admire the people who will shorten an HO car three-eighths of an inch so that it's exactly the prototype length. I mean, if that's the approach to modeling that brings you satisfaction, more power to you. That's just not the approach that I've used. Okay. Third point, do it well, but get it done. This one has to do a little bit with the armchair modeler kind of thing. My philosophy is you've got to pick up a saw or pick up a knife and get started on something. But everything that's critical, you've got to do it well. I guess the way I'd say this is, if you're not going to see the backside of a building, you don't need to model it. But the sides that you do see, the joints have to be square, the glue can't show, the paint has to be well done. But don't do things, add detail, levels of finesse that will slow down the modeling or make you so frustrated that you'll put the project aside and not get it done. Get away from analysis paralysis. That's exactly right. One of the ways I've approached this is I try to do something every day on the layout. 
some people say, well, I can't get to the basement every day. I don't mean get to the basement every day. Send an email to somebody to solicit a piece of information that you're looking for. Sweep the shop. Just do something that keeps the project moving forward. And whatever that task is, do it well so that it doesn't have to be redone again. And you'll be amazed at how much time you can put in on the layout project and how quickly that'll help you get it to the point where you can say, hey, I got a layout and I'm proud of it. Your fourth point is one I need to adopt, and that's be consistent. I'm an inveterate tinkerer who tries to build a model a different way each time. And I think of my trees on my layout. And I think you actually mentioned trees as a perfect example of that. I've probably got to go back and standardize my foliage, but be consistent. Can you elaborate on that for us? I think of this in two categories, the visual parts of the layout and the mechanical parts. As far as the visual parts, I think of model railroading as an art form. It's a three-dimensional piece of art. It's a sculpture in the sense that it's dynamic. For me, for a layout to be successful, it needs to look like it was done by a single artist, even if it wasn't. I've seen some club layouts that it's amazing how everyone has learned how to use the same basic techniques, and trees is a good example, so that there's an overall harmony to the visual appearance of the layout. In my case, I use only one manufacturer's ground foam and foliage. I use only one manufacturer's paint so that there's a harmony in the visual appearance. Only use one technique for making water. Only use one technique for making the rock facings. I even have gone so far as I only use one manufacturer's figures because every company has a different artist sculpt their figures. And so the proportions are a little different. The level of detail is a little different. And that visual consistency, I think, is very important. Interesting point. And then the mechanical elements of the layout, the same thing applies. I only use one manufacturer's coupler, so I know that there's 100% compatibility. I only use one manufacturer's track. I use one manufacturer's decoder. And that way, not only do the things work together as they're supposed to, but I don't have to remember whose decoder is that one and how do you program that one. Just like a railroad only bought one company's diesel engine so they could have one supply of parts and their mechanics only had to learn one company's techniques, I apply the same thing to my layout. So both the visual elements and the mechanical elements, I've found that consistency makes it look better, makes it run better. There you have it, folks. Chapter two, but there's a whole bunch of other chapters. Ever stop to think how your layout might have turned out if you had not applied these four rules, Brooks? Very clearly, very quickly, I could say it's very possible the layout wouldn't exist at all. Let me just tell you the brief story. When I started to model the BCNG, there were no S-scale consolidations available. The BCNG had three consolidations in the period I modeled. So I had no choice but to take American Flyer 080 switchers, convert them to consolidations by modifying the pilots and adding a pilot truck, and get by with less than perfect representations of those engines. Later, S Helper Service came out with a beautiful consolidation, and I took all the flyer-based engines off the layout and put the beautiful new models on. But if I had waited until there was a perfect model of a consolidation, a beautiful running, beautiful looking model of a consolidation to get started, I wouldn't have started at all. That's probably the biggest kind of example. Yeah. I was focused on getting a finished layout up and running, and I was willing to make a few compromises here and there to reach that end as long as it didn't compromise a good-looking, smooth-running layout in the end. Excellent point. My recollection is that S-Helper Service Consolidation came out in 2006 at the NASG convention, which is where I saw your pretty much finished layout. So if you'd only been starting the layout waiting for that locomotive, I wouldn't have had a layout to look at. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's exactly right. Well, Brooks, thanks for being with us here on, on the Model Railway 
show. Again, we remind our listeners to use the link on our homepage to access Brooks Buffalo Creek and Golly website. When you get there, you'll find information on how to purchase his books and DVDs. Thanks so much, Brooks. Hey, my pleasure. Well, thanks, guys. Some good information there for our listeners to take away. You know, I think maybe Brooks should do a clinic on how to get yourself published because he I obviously hear. knows how to talk to publishers. I just noted that the January February Gazette has got Brooks' layout in, and in fact, I think it's a cover. I haven't picked the issue up yet as we're recording. Well, this, he will be the short line in Narrow Gauge and Short Line Gazette. That's right, because everybody thinks it's automatically Narrow Gauge, but no, any short line railroad of any gauge will do, won't it? Absolutely, yeah. of course. Again, we'll remind listeners that if you haven't had a chance to look at Brooks Stover's work, get yourself over to the themodelrailwayshow.com. We'll have a link to Brooks's work on our Flickr gallery and, of course, a link to his own website where you can see all the great work that he's been doing. Yeah. Well, if you follow our show news, you'll have noticed that the NMRA's Master Model Railroader list has now topped the 500 mark and that MMR number 503 is someone special. Joel Priest of Kansas City, Missouri, at age 12, recently became the youngest person ever to achieve that special recognition. Great work, Joel. Joel has agreed to join us here soon to tell us all about it, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with him. Next time around, though, we'll have tips from talented scenery modelers. Gordon Gravitt from the United Kingdom will discuss model trees, not as mere scenery, but as highly detailed foreground structures. Once you've seen his astonishing works of art, I think that twigs and dyed sawdust just won't cut it. And, well, the other one, there once was a man from Nantucket. Uh-uh. No, you can't go okay. there. Well, he was actually from Cape Cod. His name was Dave Frary, and he wrote the book on scenery quite literally. Dave's going to be here to discuss the challenges of building a museum layout for the Nantucket Whaling Museum. Okay, and a reminder before we leave, why not plan to welcome spring by attending the RPM East Prototype Seminar at Greensburg, PA, on March 22nd and 23rd. Check the link on our website and program the GPS because there are no straight roads in Pennsylvania. Well, it's time to go. That music you hear is courtesy of Maestro Dave Woodhead. The great-looking website springs from the nimble mind of Otto Vondrack, and the fact that you're hearing us at all is due in no small part to our tech guy, Chris Abbott, who actually had a birthday this month. Happy birthday, Chris. Happy birthday, Chris. Thanks all, and thank you for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. (laughs) 